Hello, my name is Afshin Marashi, and I'm the director of the Farzaneh Family Center for Iranian and Persian Gulf Studies here at the University of Oklahoma. And on behalf of everyone here at the center and at the university, I'd like to welcome you to the OU Iranian Studies podcast. Uh, we're recording this in September of 2019, and I'm pleased that the podcast is now in its second year. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to our other podcast episodes, uh, they're online. Please go to the Farzana Center website and you can listen to them there. We also have a video library of uh, talks that people have given uh, among our visiting speakers. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, so please like us on uh, those things. Uh, today for the, uh, for the podcast, for this episode, we, we're very fortunate to have with us uh, Dr. Uh, Nahid Siamdust. Uh, Nahid is the Ehsan Yasharter uh, Fellow at Yale University's Iranian Studies Program. So, Nahid, welcome to the OU Iranian Studies Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Afshin. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. We've been trying to bring you for a couple of years. So I'm glad uh, I finally made finally it. finally <laughs> made it. Welcome to you know, the southern plains of the North American uh, continent. Uh, where, that's right. So, uh, well, thanks. Uh, Nahid is the author of uh, soundtrack of the Revolution, Music and Politics in Iran, published in 2017 by Stanford University Press, uh, a book that has received a great deal of well-deserved praise. Uh, there's a lot I'd like to talk to you about uh, relating to the book. Uh, I'm also hoping to get maybe have some more general discussion about the state of the field in Iranian studies and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can, maybe the best place to start, maybe you can Say something about your academic training and your your background generally, uh, if you'd like to start with that. Sure. So I'll start sort of at the beginning. Um, I I did a degree in political science and art history uh, initially and a master in international affairs and then went back to Iran, uh, back as in I hadn't hadn't lived there since I'd been 10, uh, 10 years old. Um, But I then went to Iran and uh, worked there as a journalist for several years, Mm -hmm. uh, really uh, from about 2002 through to 2009, though I had um, several longer stints in other places. Um, but and worked across the Middle East um, as a journalist. And then um, started doing my PhD at Oxford in 2007, um, mm-hmm. though I was sort of doing it remotely for mm-hmm. uh, the first couple of years, and then returned and um, worked there with Walter Armbrust, who's an anthropologist of Egypt, uh, and a media anthropologist, really, sort of culture and media anthropologist, and was trained by him in anthropology and the methods and um, a literature of anthropology, especially Middle East um, anthropology. Mm-hmm. And um, from there, um, you know, finished my doctorate there in uh, modern Middle Eastern studies. And uh, really my, my book came out of the dissertation that I wrote. Um, I remember, you know, I was a graduate student at UCLA in, in history in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, ancient history now, I guess. <laughs> uh, but I remember when the Walter Armburst book came out, right. mask, uh, what is it, uh, mass, mass culture, culture modernism in right. Egypt, and I think it was 90, mid-90s. Mid-90s, yep. And, you know, as a historian, that book actually had a big influence on how I thought about history, because there wasn't really much serious discussion of media studies and mass culture and pop culture as a, you know, the mm-hmm. evolution of that within the context of the Middle East. And that book actually, I think even though it was written by an anthropologist, mm-hmm. uh, really taught a, l- a lot of us historians how to do cultural history. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really much of that. And I think really even until recently with you know your book, Soundtrack of the, of the Revolution and a few other things, 
there seems to be a kind of an emergence of, of something that, you know, Walter Armburst and some, a few other people had started in those days. I mean, the other book mm-hmm. is Hami Nafisi's right. work from the 90s, right. which was the other book about a lot of these things. Um, Film and media, yeah. Yeah, and, and even the, the book on mass, what is it, uh, Iranian television in Los Angeles. I don't know if you've seen right, it. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. Really just taking media as an, as an important and significant register of study. That's something that Walter Armbrust did with his, um, you know, taking mass media and examining its role in, um, right. in the processes of... Uh, uh, modernity in Egypt. And uh, only a few years ago, I think about four or five years ago, Walter published another article really arguing that we should be giving more emphasis to the study of media uh, in all kinds of processes. But that's that's been his life's work. Well, that's, well, that's good. I'm, and I'm glad to see there's more. That stuff has become really almost mainstream now. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of people doing that's that. That's right. And, you mm-hmm. know, um, and so it's had a big influence. I mean, and we see it in, in in your book too, soundtrack of the revolution. I guess the primary focus of, of your book, as far as I can, if I can sort of define it, is to look at the political evolution of Iran since 1979 by analyzing music and the cultural history of music and the, the politics of music. That's right. Um, so, what do you think, looking at the politics of music in Iran during that period, what does it teach us about the Islamic Republic? Well, what it really teaches us is that um, the Islamic Republic um, as a state has had various uh, trajectories of, um, you know, decision-making and policy-making. And one really important concept within Islamic Republic policy-making has been uh, the concept of maslahat or expediency, something that Khomeini himself, toward the later uh, years of his life, sort of late 80s, in a series of very uh, open and public um, Uh, jurisprudential uh, meetings uh, clarified, which basically meant that the interests of the state trump uh, trump the Sharia. Mm -hmm. So what is in the interest of of the state of the continuity of the Islamic Republic is more important than a strict um, a strict allegiance, so um, you know, or following of the Sharia. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, so there's been a kind of evolution. Exactly. There, there's been a, uh, and you know that that has allowed for all kinds of flexibilities. So, what determines what kind of policy is set in any in any in, uh, in any area uh, is not some sort of obscure, you know, weighing of the various jurisprudential reasonings of the various ulama or marjid haqlid sources of emulation who can really disagree, disagree among one another. But what really uh, trumps is what is in the interest of the survival of the state, and that has led to um, you know fle- flexibility in policy setting in the public in the cultural realm when it comes to music, when it comes to film, um, and in other areas as well. But I mean, the early period, though, I mean, I guess it would be the '80s if we kind of define it in stages. It, it was there was a more strict policy in terms of regulating music, and then there's other stages in mm-hmm. which it has, you know, this maslahat process mm-hmm. has kind of come to moderate as mm-hmm. with, you know, the journalistic language. Um, uh, but those are the stages, right, basically? Yeah, I think, I think you know, Khomeini himself arrived as, at this idea of maslahat, I believe, um, through having reigned as a, you know, pragmatic uh, sort of, uh, you know, statesman as opposed to just an Ayatollah for several years. And there was a real turning point only about a year after the revolution happened, right. after he had said eliminate music completely. I mean, he has right. a very categorical well, statement on I mean. music. He yeah. says, 
eliminate music completely. It's uh, it corrupts the youth. It you know just get rid of it. And then a year into the um, you know a few uh, about nine months or less uh, September of 1979, Murtaza Mutahari, one of his mm-hmm. dearest proteges, is assassinated. And about a year after that people within the field of music who are uh, affiliated with um, state media, they produce this piece in commemoration of Mutahari uh, that includes instrumental passages that are reminiscent of uh, the songs of someone like Haide, so the classical pop music of the pre-revolutionary era, very rhythmical, uh, and in fact, um, you know, based in the Persian Radif. And all of that music was thought to be completely uh, out of the out of question after the revolution, and so these people uh, create this song, and in order to test the waters, take it to Khomeini himself. He listens to it, asks to see the makers, and says, um, "I do not cry much, but I cried when I heard your song. This is the most beautiful piece of music that I've ever heard, and if you continue making music like this, I will support you." Mm-hmm. So from that point onward, already about. That's pretty early, actually. A little more than a year into the revolution, <laughs> rhythmical music is greenlighted by the revolutionary father, you know, mm-hmm. Ayatollah Khomeini himself. And as of as of then, um, producers within state media start to create music. So the, the issue was no longer, is it too rhythmical? Is it too fast? The issue was one of commitment. Is mm-hmm. it committed to the ideals of the revolution? And if it's committed to the ideals of the revolution, then it accord it. Uh, it is within the, you know, within the interests of the state. It accords mm. sort of to Maslahat, mm-hmm. a policy that he later articulated. I mean, but ultimately, I mean, this is another theme that really comes through in your book is that, you know, the state itself really does have a kind of commanding role in defining and shaping and regulating, uh, you know, the, the official understanding of, in this case, music. Uh, and, you know, they're pretty robust in regulating music, mm-hmm. you know, despite whatever maslahat there might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, you know, thinking about sort of the other areas within the field of Iranian studies, I mean, I work on, you know, nation building and the mm-hmm. cultural history of nationalism, mostly in the Reza shop here. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, the cultural policy of na- nation building in the Reza Shah period and right. the way the culture was defined and shaped and kind of the state was the agent of a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you see the book being in conversation with, you know, the, the sort of larger debate about, you know, national identity and how it's made and remade in 20th mm-hmm. century Iran and beyond? Absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is that um, there are continuities, but there are also a lot of discontinuities. So in the Reza Shah period, what you see is that he really just rejects, um, you know, a traditional Persian culture. He has there's right. no he has no love loss for Persian classical music. He brings in foreign That's European right. and you write about musicians, yeah. right, to teach Iranians how to play Western orchestra music That's and march right. music, and eliminates, um, you know, for for a period of decades, there really isn't much support for Persian classical music. Of course, musicians continue to make their own music, but on the on the uh, stage on the state stage, right? What you see sort of promoted—that's um, that's not uh, part of it. So, I mean, one of the maybe mm-hmm. the uh, the shorthand misinterpretations of the Islamic Republic is that you know when 1979 happened, 
it was a kind of retreat from modernity mm-hmm. or there mm-hmm. was the pre-79 period was sort of the modern modernization mm-hmm. period and 79 and after was a kind of resistance to that. But one theme that really comes through your book is the continuity in this kind of you know, modern, even the Islamic Republic mm-hmm. uses modern techniques of governmentality or the state project. Um, and that is, I think, um, something we need to understand is what some of these continuities are, you know, despite the discontinuities that are also kind mm-hmm. of... Uh, maybe another theme that comes up is this theme of poetry. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can say something about that because that's obviously a big theme in your book. And poetry is obviously such a big part of Iranian culture. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, a figure like uh, Mohammad Reza Shajarian, for example, he really becomes a kind of, uh, more than just a musician, really a kind of moral authority. Yeah. Uh, how does that work, yeah. do you think? Um, so I, I just want to tell you before I sort of go back to answering that question that Mohammad Reza Shajarian also saw himself within that role. So when I talked to him about... Um, you know, his role as a musician, he said, you know, the role of musicians is to guide the people. Mm. That is their role. Um, And I said, well, is that sort of, would you say that's a similar role to that of, let's say, you know, clerics and ayatollahs who believe that they're they're there to guide the people? And he said, yes, absolutely. We do it too, but we do it more beautifully. We do it with music. That's that's great. (laughs) So he, he very much sees himself within that role of guiding the people. And poetry plays a really large role in Iranian culture, of course, and in the music of the past 100 years, because, you know, and going back to the conversation about the state trying to police the cultural arena, and this being a very sort of modern phenomenon of trying to really regulate what kind of art is produced and is not and is in the public realm, um, the art of Persian classical poetry to be able to express things not in an implicit way, right? Uh, where uh, in the poetry of Hafez and Rumi and and Khayyam, um, certain meanings are are conveyed without the explicit um, mm-hmm. uh, terminology that would get those poets or those who trade in that poetry listen to uh, to that poetry into trouble. And Shajarian uses some of that poetry. So, for example. Um, you know, the poetry of the era of uh, the constitutional period. And um, he's actually working, uh, he's sort of continuing the tradition of Arif Ghazbini, who at the time of the constitutional revolution for the very first time used Persian poetry uh, to uh, politicize, uh, you know, um, the, the, the musical concert. So the musical concert at the uh, early in the 20th century became this arena, one of the few spaces where strangers could come together in a public setting and, uh, and have a political conversation. And Shajarian takes uh, a lot of the songs from that early period. And his Morga Sahar, for example, is from mm-hmm. um, the early 1920s, uh, written by Malik Shuaroy Bahar. Um, it was written in critique of the Reza Shah period, actually. But he takes that, which, which you know, t- turns the golobolbol around. The nightingale and the rose is politicized. And um, so by doing that, he's also 
drawing on a tradition that's been going on for over a century in Iran. So this freedom discourse that Shah Jaryan creates in his work is not just a discourse that he's created in post-revolution Iran that points to that very moment. It has much more depth and significance because it points to this century-long arc of freedom-seeking activities in Iran. And so when people in his concerts repeat the refrain, you know, a khuda, a falak, a tabiat, you know, turn our day around, oh God, oh universe, oh nature, mm -hmm. let us have our day, let the, you know, cage bird break free. Um, it is in that long tradition and hence much more significant still. Yeah, and it, like it's part of this, you know, this debate about who speaks for Iranian culture. Mm. Uh, and there are these different spokespersons from different, Parts of Iranian society and the clerisy are one, mm. but poets and musicians, and even mm -hmm. in some ways, filmmakers have right. become come to play that kind of role. So I think that's a one of the themes that really does come up in the in the book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, another big part of the story that you tell is really a, a history of technology and music. Uh, you know, everything from the beginning, record players and cassette tapes, and you know, VHS and DVD, and of course, satellites and, you know, YouTubes and blogs. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the implications of these technological changes? How does that, how does that kind of factor into how music becomes part of the politics of modern Iran? Uh, understanding technology and technological evolution is central to understanding not just music, but political mediation in uh, modern Iran. And, uh, you know, you see at the time of the revolution, that cassette, the cassette tape, small media, right. as you know, Annabelle Serberni and um, Mohammadi have written about, small media are instrumental to uh, mediating uh, discontent during the revolution. And if you look at the musical sphere, if it wasn't for the music, for the cassette tape, these musicians who continued throughout the 80s uh, to produce music that they couldn't really sell in stores and because music was still problematic in the 80s, um, they were able to trade these, you know, small pieces of technology uh, under the table in certain shops or even as Mohammad Reza Lotfi, uh, one of the most famous uh, tar players and practitioners of Persian classical music who's uh, passed away, who passed away several years ago, he told me, you know, he would stand in Imam Hussein Square and literally pass out his cassette tape. So without that, it wouldn't have been possible. Um, the biggest... Uh, uh, sort of game changers in post-revolutionary Iran as far as techno technology is concerned are, of course, the VHS tape. Mm -hmm. You know, and this is something that I'm currently working on in the 1980s, how in the absence of the internet, in the absence of satellite television, in the absence of free channels to um, exchange opinions and cultural pr uh, products, uh, the VHS tape was this world that allowed a window onto the world outside, but also created this space for people to have to trade in political and social and cultural discourses that they couldn't officially. Mm -hmm. um, so the VHS tape was probably one of the, um, not probably, was one of the biggest um, uh, game changers. And then, of course, satellite television. Once satellite television technology in the late 90s, um, more like maybe mid-90s, right, uh, mm -hmm. becomes uh, prevalent in Iran and even up to today, uh, Iranians are no longer bound to the state and what it allows. Iranians are plugging into all kinds of programming that is uh, beamed in from abroad. And then the Internet changes everything, of course, right? Mm -hmm. You no longer have 
you no longer are musicians were no longer dependent on the state to get permits. Um, they could easily upload their music on the internet and uh, social media as a next step of the internet of something right. that you know people easily have on their phones and uh, sort of engage in on a daily, if not sort of almost hourly basis, afforded a whole other uh, dimension that um, has opened these spaces for uh, mediation. I mean, I think that's that's obviously very true and you have a very detailed discussion of that in the book. Uh, but, you know, what you also discuss in the book is, on the one hand, you know, technology becomes a, you know, a, a, a way of being subversive because mm-hmm. you can use technology mm-hmm. to do the things that you're describing. But what you also describe in the book is really the role of the government in mm-hmm. kind of regulating these things. And, you know, what, what was really interesting and, I guess, impressive <laughs> is how the Islamic Republic is actually quite savvy mm-hmm. in its use of technology to police the culture uh, in, in some ways. It's sort of this cat-and-mouse game. Uh, but technology can work both ways, right? That's both right. as both yeah. subversion and authoritarianism. That's right. So how does how do the how does it work? You know, in this sort of more policing kind of yeah. Way? And I think you see that much more with uh, the internet era. So with you know the technology that I discussed before, cassette tapes and VHS tape and so on, satellite television, even that wasn't something that the state could police at large. That was too difficult to do. And at mm-hmm. some point, the Islamic Republic uh-huh. gave up policing satellite dishes and. Mm-hmm you know, trying to take those on, and now everybody has them, and nobody really has to fear for, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, uh, members of the police to come and take down their satellite dishes. The Internet is a whole other mm-hmm. um, a whole other issue because the Internet allows for the state to do deep monitoring of people's activities. And, in fact, after 2009, the state instituted FATA, which is the Internet Police in Iran. Mm-hmm. And they really have everybody's, dig- you know, they, they have a very large... Um, uh, bureau that is dedicated to following people's digital fingerprints, uh, especially following viral videos and uh, being on top of who's producing mm-hmm. what and who's out there and being able to really track those people down. So when the you know the group of kids who did the happy video for El Williams, uh, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, their version of Pharrell Williams' uh, happy dance, they were tracked down within a matter of a day, right? Uh, Within a matter of a day or so after sort of the video went viral. um, And within a matter of a few, a week or so, those kids were on state television Mm, um, saying they'd done wrong. So, yeah, definitely, I think you're right. In the area Mm. of some some types Mm -hmm. of technology are easier to regulate. And so that's part of the this process. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, speaking of, um, you know, the, the policing, you do describe in the book this sort of maze or this web of bureaucracy mm-hmm. that uh, is, you know, regulates musical culture. You know, there, you, maybe you can describe some of those things. What, what are they, like the Ershad and mm-hmm. other things? How does that work? Sure, yeah. There are three main offices that, regu- that regulate music. One is the, the music office at the Ministry of Culture and Islamic Guidance, Ershad. The other one is Sedo Sima. So state, me- uh, state television and radio has its own set of operations, and they're not beholden to permits from Ershad. And the other one is a much smaller one. It's the Jose, mm-hmm. which is linked to the... Um, to the Organization for the Propagation of Islam, Islamic Propagation. And 
they are actually the most closely linked to the office of the supreme leader, um, but they're a small organization with a lot of money. And uh, their operations and their, the kinds of things, music they've put out, actually uh, works out in counterintuitive ways. So Mohsen Namju's first album was uh, produced by the Jose, mm-hmm. right? By this organ that is supposed to be the most revolutionary. The Jose came about um, because a number of very revolutionary artists said, we need to have our own institution to create the most revol- the most revolutionarily committed uh, culture production. And uh, But because of the uh, proximity that they have to this culture, to this political power, they're actually able to be more flexible and do things that a place mm-hmm. like Ershad, for example, which is linked to the government, a ministry that is, you know, on the cabinet of the mm-hmm. of the president, um, can't really allow itself oh, to do. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Yeah. You know, one of the things we always hear about the politics of the Islamic Republic, another one of our journalistic cliches is there there are hardliners and there are mm-hmm. moderates and of course everything is always much more complicated than that and it seems like part of what you're describing is kind of that complexity some yes. institutions have a stricter policy and others mm-hmm. have more pragmatic policies mm-hmm. uh so but that's part of the confusion because <laughs> right. no, nobody ever knows what the actual rule is uh, or... believe me musicians are so confused <laughs> and it, this hasn't changed you know i mean it's the same story uh from about in the 2000s when I was reporting and then, you know, in the late 2000s and, to, you know, onward when I was doing research for my dissertation, the phrase you constantly keep hearing is, uh, you know, music is in limbo. And uh, I think those policies of ambiguity um, are in some ways intentional. You know, mm-hmm. for example, a group like Oham, the you know, one of the very first rock groups uh, to come of age in Iran to really create a fan base. This is in 2000, right? In 2001, they had this concert at the Orthodox Church, mm-hmm. which was de facto the first underground rock music in Tehran. Mm-hmm. It was semi-public because you could purchase a ticket. You had to kind of know about it, um, but you could purchase a ticket. And because it was in the space of a minority, right, the Orthodox Church, they could allow for something like that to take place. Um, they tried for more than 10 years to get a permit. They only had a presence online. More than 10 years to get a permit. Never got one until about 2014 or so. And I happened to be in Tehran at the time and attended their concert. This is, you know, after this music group, this uh, uh, band had existed for 15 years or so, finally they had a concert. And the people who showed up had brought their kids along. I mean, it had been so long that the fans who, you know, had been keeping sort of faithful to this group had now children and were bringing their kids to this. But after that, after those uh, couple of um, concerts, again, their permit was withdrawn. And um, uh, Shahram Sherbaf, the lead singer of Oham, wrote this very public letter to the Ministry of Culture saying, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm a musician. Um, my only source of income is music. And on this day and age, uh, I have to tell you that I'm broke and totally depressed and I'm sick and tired of your policy of come back tomorrow. And I think this policy of come back tomorrow, uh, keeping people in limbo, has served, um, you know, the mm-hmm. Iranian officialdom mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, yeah, they can, you know, they can be quite arbitrary. Mm-hmm. I think, I, you know, I've mentioned elsewhere that this policy of ambiguity in some ways has also been uh, utilized by cultural producers for their own creative ways of pushing the envelope, right? Um, using the ambiguities that exist mm-hmm. to do things that uh, are not 
stri- you know, explicitly forbidden, for example. We see that in so, film, too. Right, exactly. I mean, Memphis has written about that. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it works the same way in music. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting, yeah. So it's a, one of the dynamic natures, you know, mm-hmm. the dynamic quality of all of this mm-hmm. uh, that is still kind of unresolved, but probably that's inherent to uh, the politics of the Islamic Republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one other theme that really jumps out in, in your book that I think is also a theme that the larger field of Iranian studies is engaging with is the, the transnational element mm-hmm. and the role of the world outside of Iran and how that shapes the politics and the culture inside of Iran. And in your case, you you talk about, you know, the expatriate cultures, the expatriate communities of Iranians outside of Iran, in particular Los Angeles, mm-hmm. the Los Angeles style <laughs> right. of Tehran, my hometown, mm-hmm. my, you know, right. shout out to my <laughs> homies in Tehran. <laughs> But how has the Islamic Republic managed this, these kind of transnational connections? Is, you know, is, it, is it a culture that threatens uh, you know, the, the politics inside Iran? Are they threatened by it? Do they manage it? Do they make use of it? How does it work? I would say as far, far as Los Angeles music and so on is concerned, uh, yes, they did initially feel threatened by it. That is no longer the case since uh, pop music has been greenlighted. And since then, if you look at, you know, expat media programs, uh, they try, especially at times of heightened political tension in Iran, they really try to intercept uh, those programs and, you know, uh, Parasit, uh, mm-hmm. like Parasit mm-hmm. Mifasan, they tried to cut those programs by uh-huh. putting par- parasites, I don't even know how to say that in English, into the <laughs> air, you know, so that people can't receive that kind of programming. So in post-2009, it was nearly impossible to watch BBC Persian, for example. And now, of course, they're, um, you know, they're, they're really... Um, they don't like Iran International and other stations that uh, beam this uh, programming, this anti-Islamic, or not, not, I mean, BBC Persian is not even necessarily anti-Islamic uh, Republic. It's just, right. uh, you know, critical content. Um, but I want to go back to the point that you made about, okay, so what happens, because something I do argue in my book is that I think that if it wasn't for the continuation of this expatriate music scene in Los Angeles, in Tehrangeles, right? Um, that perhaps pop music in Iran would have never been greenlighted. Um, because what happens when you look at the microprocesses of how pop music, and this is a process I describe in my book, actually happened, is that there was an official, Ali Ma'alem Damghani, who became the director of music at state television, and he had real political capital. He was a close ally of Khamenei's. Uh, he's a poet. Uh, Khamenei famously likes poetry and has these poetry evenings, right? Uh, so Ali Malim Damrani was an artist, a poet, and was a close confidant of Ali Khamenei. And after many years, um, this, there was a bottom-up pressure by young musicians who wanted to create pop music uh, internally, right? And one of the musicians who was at the forefront of doing this, Khashoyar Etemadi, had a voice that had very clear similarities to the voice of Dariush, the beloved uh, yeah. Dariush of pre-revolutionary Iran, of who was now in Los Angeles, <laughs> right? Who at the time in Pahlavi era Iran actually was a political singer and had had been um, had been imprisoned because of his work by the Shah's government. So. 
this guy, Khasher Etemadi, keeps sort of bringing tracks to uh, the directors of music at state television before Ali Muallem is there. And they all say, no, 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 your voice sounds too similar to a Khanandi Umara Abi, to this guy <laughs> that we don't want to you know, promote here inside the Islamic Republic. But then Ali Muallem comes in. Uh, and this also goes back to your question about continuities as opposed mm-hmm. to discontinuities pre- and post-revolution, right? He comes in and he listens to Khasher Etemadi and he says, wow, well... Your voice sounds great. It just sounds just like Daryush, right? <laughs> and because Daryush had been a political singer, he actually likes him. Mm. And in the interview with me, Ali Mu'allem kept mixing the two up, right? So he would say, didn't Khashar Etamadi sing Buye Gandom, which is a famous song of Daryush? And, and then I said, look, isn't it problematic that this guy has a voice that is so similar to, you know, this Khanandi Umar Abi as he was... Uh, accused of previously and Ali Ma'alem's uh, response was no it's not problematic that is their cultural heritage the you know all rivers flow into the ocean it doesn't work the other way around just because he's in Los Angeles doesn't mean he's not part of our cultural heritage this is from one of the closest confidants of Ali Khamenei right but he's now sitting in this place of power and he says this is great let's do it um and so it's really there that pop music becomes greenlighted. But of course, the element that you mentioned before, the threat, also plays a factor. Because uh, there's this rumor, which I couldn't really fully confirm, but it was around that what happened subsequently was Khamenei sought the opinions of uh, Maraje Taqlid across Iran, or, you know, in order to stop the flow of this illicit content that's coming in from L.A., is it okay for us to allow for the creation of state-sanctioned, state-approved pop music? Um, right. And he gets their consent. And then Ali Malim says, well, perfect, because we have this guy who is a continuity of the kind of singer that we like, which is politically committed. And and that, I found that whole discussion in the book uh, really fascinating, the sort of local Iran-produced alternative mm-hmm. pop music that was... Uh, that grew out of this interplay between mm-hmm. you know, the expat community and the politics inside Iran. So I think that's uh, really interesting to think about how the world outside of Iran and the expatriate communities still have a, a place mm-hmm. inside Iran as well, in, in surprising, sometimes in surprising ways. Right. Um, you know, another theme that comes up in your book is this generational theme. Mm-hmm. And you do seem to describe these musical generations that have evolved since 1979 uh, and I don't know how many of them you can define I think you you have this sort of Nasle uh, Savom idea of three generations mm-hmm. or so mm-hmm. uh, but certainly a very important person in that generational evolution is Mohsen Namju mm-hmm. and so how would you kind of situate him what does he represent in terms mm-hmm. of this the generational evolution of Mm-hmm. The politics of music in Iran. So I bring I bring the notion and concept of the generation um, into discussion with Mohsen Namju, especially because he is uh, a child of the revolution. He came of age during the revolution, so he remembers the war. When he was coming of age and he was a teenager, he was at the receiving end of some of the most draconian sort of measures of moral policing in the public realm. Right? Mm-hmm. It was a time. This is something that he's written about in his. Um, in his Dahe Shast, which is a sort of declamation. It's a, it's a poetry that, that yeah. he often uh, sings along to his sitar. 
in which he says, you know, having uh, long hair was a crime, having wearing short sleeves was, you know, deserved your kick in the groin, and and so on. What was allowed was this yarechek, um, you know, having sort of dirt around your on your collar and just appearing to, you know, having the three day beard, and that was the <laughs> yeah. that was the ideal that was promoted right. by that was that was a sign of faith, right, as I opposed remember. to being clean shaven and having a Western tie tie and so on. And so um, I argue that. Because of having been at the receiving end all of this, the kind of music that he produces is very much is very um, it's very angry and it uh, it really wants to break all those molds. It's very critical. Um, you know, he has a song in which he um, depicts the country's supreme leader Ali Khamenei in the worst sort of possible mm-hmm. uh, language you could imagine, and he really lashes out against everything that the Islamic Republic stands for. Mm-hmm. And I draw this, bring this into comparison with the generation that comes after him, after this Nasr-e-Sukhte, the burnt generation, which is called burnt because they basically lost their youth to these, uh, you know, to the moral policing of the Islamic Republic, is the generation that comes after him of kids who... <clears throat> Excuse me, are Dahe, you know, Dahe Shasti, late Shasti, sort of born yeah, after the war. Yeah. You know, they're born born after the war. And their consciousness is a completely different one from Mohsen Namjus because they're coming of age at a time when 9-11 has happened. The, the U.S. has attacked Afghanistan, has invaded Iraq, and now there's the threat of an invasion um, of Iran every day sort of on the horizon, right? This was something that Iranians really talked about in the 2000s and that... Um, that um, mm-hmm. So the rappers that come of age in that uh, time uh, really are writing against this kind of global uh, power imbalance and the kinds of, uh, you know, injustices that come with that, the kind of injustice, the kind of, you know, so Yas, for example, writes about the children uh, who are killed in Iraq. They they need milk and diapers. They don't need bombs. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and Hitchcast uh, presents this, his posse as one that's going to defend Iran, although it is still actually uh, subversive. And he presents his posse as one that is going to be defending the honor of Iran uh, sort of setting a parallel between his honorable posse versus the Basijis who, or, you know, the the Iranian officialdom who's no longer capable of holding up that, um, that, uh, mm-hmm. that flag. Uh, but still, it's, it's this uh, global consciousness of where Iran stands in the world and a lot of really patriotic and nationalistic themes come mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, I mean... In in the context of rap music in particular, I think that's one of the big discussions in the book as well. Rap seems to have, Iranian rap music seems to have really taken on a whole different kind of life of its own that's extremely popular. And you, you say there are some unique qualities of rap music that kind of makes it naturally kind of, uh, you know, uh, adaptable to the yeah. Iranian context. I mean, for one thing, it's, Rap is basically poetry, right? So it's something that is uh, that Iranians are at home with, um, and you know there is something like rap in Persian uh, <laughs> culture. It's tavil, you know. It's mm-hmm. a kind of long, sort of expression, sort of long poetry that doesn't isn't exactly set um, to a uh, to a, to a very um, mm-hmm. traditional rhyme, and uh, mm-hmm. so. When talking to these rappers, they would all tell me, well, you know, I, I started writing poetry and 
Um, then I heard rap music coming in from, you know, my father brought me a tape from Germany. My uncle brought me a tape from the U.S. And I heard this and I was blown away. I thought, you know what, I can do this and I can set this to music. And the other uh, quality of rap, of course, is that, and this is something that Hitchcast, for example, Rush Lashkeri, the, the rapper, told me, um, is that he was like, you know, I don't like Gertibazi. I don't like, you know, doing, I don't want to dance. I want to I wanna express my thoughts. And the only medium that really allows me to do that and present my life uh, at this sort of, it's, right. you know, is rap music because I can express a lot within a short It's a kind of social critique, of time. rap. You exactly. Know? I mean, and that's how it plays out in a lot of sure. contexts. In, yeah, in, in the other, West, in yeah. The West well, well, and certainly its origins and Absolutely. it still continues to, yeah. Absolutely. Um, that's interesting. You know, I, just to stay on, um, I guess it's uh, rap music, is the, the music of Yoss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that really jumped out at me is your discussion of his song, uh, Hoviyata Man, mm-hmm. uh, which does have this all of this, this nationalism, themes mm-hmm. of nationalism that comes up in, mm-hmm. in uh, some of his lyrics. But it's surprising to me that so much of it actually references a kind of pre-Islamic nostalgia. Which, you know, for those of us who have sort of made careers of you know, deconstructing <laughs> the history of Iranian nationalism right. and the sort of neoclassicism fetish mm-hmm. that defined all those decades of the middle part of the 20th century, it was surprising for me to see that, you know, there's this rapper who was born in the Islamic Republic and reared during the utopian, you know, decades of the Islamic Republic actually reviving <laughs> this revival right. of uh, using that as a basis for rap music. So where does that come from? What does it say about, I guess, the historiography that critiques neoclassicism and Iranian nationalism? I, I don't know. What, what do you make of Yas? <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, I get Yas because he is completely the norm. He's com- so whatever historiography, your very valuable historiography that you yourself have done and others like you have done, uh, is not something that Yas and his generation are engaging with. If if anything, um, they are doing. <laughs> it's a good they, thing. Good thing. Good for them. <laughs> they're promoting the exact opposite, and <laughs> you know, sort of exhibiting allegiance to this pre-Islamic Iran, to you know, having symbols of Zoroastrianism like Ahura Mazda and so on, as you know, jewelry or on your T-shirt and so on is so mainstream among Iranian, I would say not just even youth, among Iranians today. Mm-hmm. And this discourse of, you know, if, if only it wasn't for Islam, we'd be such a better country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's baffling because you've had 40 years of an Islamic republic whose main goal and aim has been to Islamize Iranians and to have this sort of perfect Islamic polity, right? And right. this is a conversation that's going on in Iran itself as well, by the way, which right. is, you know, uh, it actually all of all of that enforcing has turned people away from religion, and they're locating the source of their problems in Islam now, and and they're they're the kind of ugly sort of. Uh, nationalistic sure. tones yeah. to it too, like very right. anti-Arab, right, uh, right, very right. sort of pro-Aryan, right. and yeah, and so. So yeah, I think we need to continue to have this dialogue <laughs> so we can kind of work through some of the problematic right. elements of this. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> yes. they can listen to our podcast. Um, if only it was in Persian, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, well, maybe one one final question, and this might be, I think, where your book culminates is with the uh, 2009 Green Movement. Um, and you have some very interesting connections that you make between the politics of 
of the Green Movement in 2009 and the role that music played mm -hmm. in that movement. Uh, can you say something about that? How did music sort of play a role in, in 2009? Music played a big role. And, um, but what was really most fascinating was that a lot of the songs, the role that music played in 2009 was to emphasize and reiterate that the goals of the 1979 revolution had not been met because there was a lot of recycling of the songs of 1979 going on. And many of those songs, in turn, hailed from the constitutional revolution. So all of a sudden, you had this narrative that spanned, you know, 100 years or more, and really made all of that uh, music and discourse all the more powerful, because it was like Iranians had been at it for more than 100 years, trying to achieve this freedom and justice and this, you know, country that they were, um, that they were working toward. So it was interesting on that, you know, really fascinating to watch. There are many, many different, um, you know, uh, versions of Morga Sahar, for example, including by Mohsen and Amju, for example. Um, but another interesting aspect of it was that Hossein Musavi's own campaign, youth campaign, chose a former a Marxist song as their campaign song. So Hossein Musavi had chosen Aftab Karan which uh, belonged to the Fedayeen, uh, chose the song that in some ways signaled that, you know, the let the past, let the bygone be bygone, right? Let's, let's forget our animosities of enmities of pre-revolutionary Iran, these divisions between, divisions between leftists and Islamists and whatnot, and let's have a more inclusive uh, discourse about the future of Iran. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I was sitting in the, in, uh, in the stadium when um, his song was uh, first broadcast, and I was sitting next to a woman who was in her 30s, and there was instant tears. I mean, as soon as this song started airing, there were instant tears because... You know, within a few seconds of listening to the songs, and this is where the power of music comes in, she had received that message, right? Mm -hmm. the, it, was, there wasn't, it wasn't necessary to have a very explicit sort of political statement or anything. In right. fact, that would have been problematic, but it was possible to choose the song. And, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, also what happened during 2009 was that songs like Yard Abistani uh, Man, um, a Iran, these very sort of national, uh, well, A Iran is a sort of anthem. de facto Iranian yeah. you know, national anthem. It never actually was mm -hmm. Iran's oh, really? anthem, oh, yeah. Uh, but it is de facto sort of Iran's anthem. Um, and Yared Abistan Yaman is about sort of this unit, this thing that unites Iranians, right? They all at one point were in primary school. They all were once children of this country trying to make this place a better place. Um, and so these very nationalistic sort of patriotic songs pointed to a secular future, right? Uh, people weren't using a lot of Islamic signifiers in the music that was used. Um, mm -hmm. That was, you know, Islam had played a lot, big role in the songs and the music of 1979, but it was basically not present in 2009. And mm -hmm. that was another interesting Thing to I watch. think you also describe, you know, it did have this sort of unifying quality, this unifying quality mm. across different social divisions. I mean, mm. and that's sort of one of the questions that always comes up in discussions of 2009 is sort of the, you know, the social composition of the 2009 mm. movement. Was it, did it represent kind of a, a middle class frustration 
with uh, Iranian politics, or did it represent something more broad-based than that? And I think in what you, the way you describe the role of music is it had this socially unifying quality that didn't mm-hmm. cut across different uh, social divides. You know. um, I think so. I think it's, um, you know, you, you, you could certainly sort of, uh, a bit harder to see, I think, the cross-class aspect of it is a bit harder to see perhaps in music, although, you know, Yared Abistani Man is a song that's intoned in all kinds of student gatherings, and students are certainly cross-class. This is, we're not just mm-hmm. talking about middle class. And, um, and you know, you also the intonations of Allahu Akbar, which, again, was juxtaposing the Allahu Akbar of 2009 to 1979. We're still calling to God, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That That is an instance of authority that is, that is separate from the authority of the Islamic Republic. So in that sense of people going to their rooftops, which happened mm-hmm. across. Right. Um, but, you know, having been present in the 2009 demonstrations, just based on my Experience. I mean, I was observing uh, mechanics from the south of Tehran uh, march along with, you know, bank tellers from, uh, you know, central to south Tehran to, you know, old ladies who were living right around the Azadi area, which is, again, not a certainly not a, you know, maybe lower middle class. Um, but I do think that the green movement was Mm-hmm. in its embodiment in the streets and the protests, a very wide uh, cross-class mm-hmm. phenomenon. And, and yeah, and I think in the book you describe how music kind of helped to unify and build these mm-hmm. uh, connections. That's right. I mean, you know, all you needed to do was to say, uh, you know, intone a line from Morga Saha or intone a line from Shajarian's uh, song, Tufangit Razamin Begzar, or uh, intone a song, from a line from... Uh, you know, um, Hamid Anik Pei's song, which he, for which he took the poem from the demonstrations, actually, in which people uh, sort of turned Ahmadinejad's speech about the Khasukhashak around and said, you know, you are the Khasukhashak, I am the Nur Manam Hole, you know, I'm the, I'm the halo, I'm the light. Um, anyway, so with, with one, you, it was very easy, easy to sort of unite with somebody else based on just a simple line. And music and poetry mm-hmm. can, can do that. Right. Well, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground, and I think we've still only scratched the surface <laughs> in, in both uh, the subject matter and what you discuss in the book. Congratulations on the book. I certainly look forward to uh, reading more of uh, your your work uh, as it evolves in the future. And thanks again for making the, the trip to Oklahoma. Really, really appreciate it for joining us on the OU Iranian Studies podcast. Uh, and thanks to all of you. I just want to say thank you so much for having me. Your work is uh, inspiring, and thank I'm you. honored to be here. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, and we'll uh, talk to you all again soon. Thank you. Mm-hmm.